Welcome to another edition of the Grassroots Government Podcast. I'm Avery Davidson. With me right now, producer Carl Wiggers and Louisiana Farm Bureau lobbyist Joe Mapes, who's actually doing the victory dance right there because session wrapped up yesterday. Sonny die. Yeah. Are you that's, excited? That's yes. got to be a great thing for you. <laughs> yes. Sonny die. Latin for no days left, you know. Uh, very exciting. It ended at 6 p.m. last night. So whatever they were trying to do to us, they couldn't do it past 6 p.m. last night. <laughs> Funny, I never mind. I'm not going to go where I was about <laughs> to go with that. Safe. We're all a lot safer when the legislators are at home and not in Baton Rouge. That's yes. all I was saying. I would imagine they probably like it being at home too. Uh, no, no, and they don't. <laughs> the thing is, uh, people say all the time. You start hearing things like, "Hey, I heard they got the budget done early, so we're going to leave." The session before signing die, huh? And I always say no. And I know it for a fact because I know these men and women would have to go home to their families and they don't want to do that. <laughs> now, don't 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 make generalizations, Joe. Well, I'll tell you, I had a new legislator. We had three sessions jammed back together next to each other last year. Uh, and I had a legislator, a new one between the second and the third. I said, hey, how do you like this going back to back sessions like this? just segueing from one into the other. And he goes, well, at least I don't have to go home and see my family. I said, you're the guy I've been telling people about for 40 years, you know? <laughs> it, you do exist. Yes, that's right. Well, you know what also exists is a Louisiana governor who in almost any other state would have an R behind his name, but here he's got a D and dropped a bombshell just before the legislative session ended. I got to tell you, I'm very proud of our governor. It was on the cover of Forbes magazine yesterday that he has opted out of the federal uh, unemployment benefits money that could be extended until September 2nd. He's the only Democratic governor, and he's the first one to do this, along with 25 other Republican governors. So what this is going to do, it's going to put our workforce back to work. It's going to help our economy. And I see this as a very conservative action. John Bell has always been a conservative governor. We know how he is on Second Amendment rights, on, you know, uh, on, on abortion. I mean, he's very conservative. I mean, I'm just curious if this is him headed towards switching towards a Republican. This is a very Republican move. We've heard he might run for U.S. Senate. It'd be a good move for him. I had a question about this, you know, bombshell, you called it. So he opted out of this unemployment Benefit? Yes. What Federal is that? Federal unemployment benefit. Tell me, tell me about this, one of y'all. I don't, I don't yeah, care who. So, so right now, uh, it, unemployment benefits, if you're unemployed for whatever reason, I think they're paying $300 a week. An extra $300. An extra $300 a week. To 225 I believe, is the normal. Got you. Right. And so, you know, from a business standpoint, we don't have workers. I mean, you'll go places right now, a restaurant, and you'll have to wait in a line where you didn't have to a few months ago because... Uh, People aren't going to work. Yeah, people aren't going to work, exactly. You Got know? you. So John Bell's um, Governor Edwards, um, that was really disrespectful. <laughs> he <laughs> the, likes to the be honorable, John Bell. The honorable. Um, he opted out of that, it, trying to push Louisiana citizens back into work. Correct. Got you. Okay. Stimulate our workforce, stimulate our economy. That's exactly what it does. I don't understand why every governor wouldn't do this because every governor should want their economy stimulated. Yeah, I mean, we're at the point where we've relaxed the restrictions concerning COVID-19, where if you're vaccinated, don't have to wear a mask. So many people are going back to the office, back to work. There are traffic jams again in Baton Rouge every day. We need workers to go back to work. I mean, even where we are right now, we're at the Renaissance Hotel in Baton Rouge, and there is not enough staff to deal with all of the people who are staying here. Uh, we spoke to some folks this past Saturday here, and they said that they're at pre-COVID levels as far as uh, occupancy, but they are not at pre-COVID levels of staff. They're still understaffed. So restaurants not open at normal times things are not being done as quickly when it comes to room service and that sort of thing and that's the sort of that's those are the jobs that people are right now are probably making more at home on unemployment than coming here to to actually work right in 30 for 37 years the louisiana finance association one of our other clients uh, goes to the sandest and hilton with legislators and we hang for about a week we usually have about 300 uh, companies that register. We've got 120 this time because there's so much money being given out by the federal government. Nobody needs to borrow money. So 
finance companies, and these I'm not talking about payday loan companies. I'm talking about these are finance companies are going out of business. One guy who's been a long time uh, successful uh, consumer finance company down on the West Bank of New Orleans had one loan this year. He went out of business. It's wow. a family business. Okay, so the longer we keep stimulating the quote unquote stimulating the economy with this federal uh, stimulus money, the more uh, specialty services people can afford. Give you another example. They're going to start buying more cosmetic surgery, right? So all your doctors are going to go there because they're needed. So the people, 90% of your urban people, they use the ER for their daily cold or whatever. Uh, this money injected into the economy. Keep in mind, that's how the CIA brings down foreign companies, that, you know, countries. They don't go in with military equipment and assassinate people. They start flooding the economy with their, their own cash. And this is exactly how it breaks down. So I'm very proud of our governor again. And we got to think of something else on this. You know, we bring up federal money, federal money. That's that's our money. Right. That's tax dollars. Hundred percent, brother. It's not that you know, um, you know, the the money is magically appearing out of thin air. That's money that's come out of my paycheck in the form of income tax. And they didn't call you and ask you what they were, tell you what they're going to do with it, or ask you if you were okay with what they were going to do with it. Did they? I mean. The, the only time that I get a, a say is every uh, no, is an every even numbered November year. <laughs> you know, the right. no, first was it first Monday in November? Right. Or, yeah. Or first Tuesday after the first Monday in November of every even numbered year. There we go. I'm going to get it right eventually. Wow. OK, let's talk about the session. That that was a big deal. That was that related to the session, or is that just something that the governor did on top of the session? Uh, it's not related. Not to related. The session. No. The session ended last night. Correct. Sunny die. Mm -hmm. What? I mean, well, where where are we at? Yeah, you, you said to the Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation board that it, it was a good session for agriculture. Good session for agriculture. Good session for Farm Bureau. We worked with a lot of other agricultural groups together on different issues. Uh, one of the biggest issues that we had, I mean, the biggest issue is always our exclusions and exemptions. We want to make sure that they remain intact. As I told a legislator who filed a bill to remove all of those exclusions and exemptions, along with four other bills filed like that, I said, he asked me, he says, you know, well, he, he made this statement. If your farmers want to continue to get free stuff and not have good tax policy, then they can just continue to get free stuff. And I told him, I said, well, sir, that they don't want free stuff. And I said, and what you're calling good tax policy looks different from the other 49 states. And we don't want to look different from them. They may be wrong, but if we look different from them, then we're not going to be competitive in the world market, not just the American market, not just the neighboring states. You know, so that it shows me, Avery and Carl, that people just don't understand agriculture and where food comes from, you know, and, and to have people in authority that make policy to come with some authority. One of these bills was 100 pages long, ridiculous, okay? Lord. And they come with authority, so, so people respect them, so they put a bill forward, and like they know what they're talking about in agriculture, but they don't. They, you know, they, they could maybe call us and say, could we sit down and talk about this? But they expect us to come up there and fight it out at the legislature and you know, defend uh, what, 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 what's in place. And you did have uh, a lot of press and a lot of... Uh Maybe some name calling happen, happening concerning the position uh, Louisiana Farm Bureau took when it comes to solar plants and the expansion and the use of the uh, industrial tax exemption program for that. How did that end up going and what actions did the legislature take in that? Yeah. First of all, let me say thank you for using the term solar plants instead of solar farms, because there's no such thing as a solar farm. They don't grow anything, they don't produce anything. And that segues right into our questioning of the use of the industrial tax exemption program, otherwise known as the ITEP program. So the ITEP program is supposed to uh, be incent mega projects into Louisiana, okay? Mega projects would stimulate the economy probably six, seven times into the economy, okay? And provide jobs good paying, long-term jobs with benefits, okay? So say 50 jobs, and I'm not gonna predict a dollar amount, but a solar representative comes to town from Houston, for example, sells a solar plant to somebody, and then go, takes the money and goes back to Houston, okay? Now, who's managing the, the farm? I don't know, but it's one and a half, one, one person can manage one and a half, I'm sorry, I said farm, y'all can edit that out, all right? But uh, you know, one person can manage one and a half solar plants. 
And, and our argument is that they don't, one of the, the two requirements for eligibility for the ITEP program is that, you, that you're going to make jobs, that you're going to create jobs, and that you're going to uh, stimulate economic activity. Uh, we say that solar industry does neither of those. Okay, now they're getting a federal subsidy, which is 80%. They get 80% of, you know, back from the feds, and then a state subsidy, and we've even seen where, uh, uh, where uh, there, there's a capital area taxing district that's reaching out to solar companies now that's saying that they have money at a local level. So, you know, how much is enough? And, yeah, we got painted with a horrible brush. Like, we're, we're, we're opposed to green energy. We're opposed to solar. Hell, solar, that's all we use, farmers, all right? That we use the sun to grow everything that we produce, you know? So, so we had a hard time explaining to them that we were just questioning the use of a government subsidy program in, by the solar industry. They, and, and, of course, they're opponents to the bill, so they wanted to paint us with that negative brush. Um, in the end, we passed three pieces, of uh, three pieces of legislation. One sets up a permitting system. One looks at local government and the effect on agriculture in the local area. And then the other one puts a moratorium for one year on the use of the ITEP program by the solar industry while we hopefully put the other bill that permits into place. And we have to study to put those permits in place. One thing to mention, though, on this, I mean, it's very complicated because Farm Bureau has landowners that are membership, also have, you know, that landowners that may be interested in bringing on some solar production on their property. They also We also have farmers that are not landowners that are com- competing, in a sense, to lease this land, you know, that have, I mean, it's, it kind of creates this uneven playing field because farmers can't go out and get that ITIP tax uh Exemption. Exemption. So anyways, it, it kind of, all that, I think our stance, am I right, is all our stance was, was, hey, let's just look at how this, like, you know, all these incentives and, and whatnot. Let's just like pause and look at it and make sure that everything's, every, that the farmers that own land are taken care of or are, are, are not getting, you know, the short end of the stick. The farmers that are leasing land are not getting the short end of the stick and that the tax exemption is appropriate. I mean, right. is, is, is all that right? It's just, it's not, accurate. Like, it's not it's like, about, hey, no more, we don't want, it's not never, never that we don't want this. We just want it to be fair and appropriate. Right. We, we, we pushed the pause button. We wanted to push the pause button so that we could look at best practices for the industry. And that, hell, they ought to want that too. That's kind of like a cover charge at a bar, right? Keeps out the riffraff. So best practices for the industry and some guidelines for the landowners, okay? Not to tell them what they can and can't do with their land. We would never do that, okay? Property owners can do whatever they want. Uh, that's not what we were trying to do at all. We were trying to v- provide guidelines for them. But when you look at a landowner situation, they've signed a contract for five years with an option, 20 years for an option. There's probably nothing in there about decommissioning the solar plant, okay? So I talked to uh, Buddy Leach's land manager recently, who signed a contract and I asked him, I said, did, did y'all know that, that the solar companies are allowed to leave up to three feet of debris under the underground unless you put it in the contract? And he goes, yeah, we did know that. And I go, how'd you know that? And he says, because we had a, a lawyer. I said, how did the no- lawyer know that? It's a fair question because this is a new industry, right? Mm-hmm. And he says, well, he was very expensive. And I said, I understand that, so, but most people are not going to have that kind of money to get that kind of a lawyer to, you know, to do the right. job for him. So in the early 1900s, Carl, what we were doing, we just we authorized drilling of oil and gas for the first time. 110 years later, right now, we're dealing with orphan wells that are still uh, around. They're a danger. Uh, I knew, I knew a, a, met a man in the Capitol three weeks ago whose daughter died uh, in February of this year from being blown up by an orphan well through 250 feet in the air. These orphan wells are owned, they're wards of the state now, okay? Yeah. There's no way to clean them up. There's no way to protect them. Uh, we don't want the same thing to happen to our farmers and our landowners with uh, decommissioning of a solar plant. You can't just take a crescent wrench and undo mm-hmm. these things and bring them to the curb and BFI is going to haul them away for you. you got to hire a structural engineer to, to, to formulate a decommissioning plan. So that's the kinds of things along, like Carl, along like what you were saying with contract uh, items in there, just, just given some, some guidelines and some standards. And, and I don't think there's anybody, and I would say even in the solar industry, because I've talked to representatives, uh, salespeople, otherwise lobbyists, 
I don't think that they would argue that, that it's the wild, wild west, the solar industry is, and that we need to corral it and we need to put some best practices and guidelines in place. Other than solar, what were some of the uh, other things that came up uh, that made this such a, con- it wasn't, I guess, I guess contentious isn't the right word, although there was a, a bit of an incident on the, uh, the House floor in the, la- in the last few days uh, between a couple of representatives that, that nearly uh, came to fisticuffs. But what made this such a tough session, and why did you love that? <laughs> Well, first of all, that, that you're talking about that one incident on the House floor yesterday, the, uh, but, but there was one the day before that, too, that didn't make the papers. So there's a lot of tension in the Capitol, and uh, every I'm not really sure why. It's almost like national politics is trickling down into the state, and we're getting more divisive than we ever have been. Now, there's a lot of us that's working to prevent that, but... You've got some people that stick with their party lines no matter what, you know, stick with their caucuses and their delegations. And uh, I, we're more divisive than ever before. And I think that answer that speaks to your question as to why we've got so much, uh, so many people going off the handle, you know, so easily around there. Um, one of the issues we dealt with was a pipeline issue. We've got our uh, landowners and farmers that, you know, have got a situation with Kinder Morgan specifically. And uh, Kendra Morgan wants to fire up some pipelines from the 1960s and start running gas through them again, but mandate the landowners use their own dirt uh, to cover the pipelines three feet, three feet mounted dirt on these pipelines all across the property. There goes your crops. That's your dirt for your crops. There goes your irrigation, okay? Um, They wouldn't work with our farmers and landowners, and they locked us out with welded gates and locks. So we put a bill in the legislature to identify the situation specifically and solely related to them. Um, the bill passed, and so now they can't, by law, do what they wanted to do. They still won't come talk to us, uh, which is ridiculous, Kinder Morgan, if you have, happen to be listening to this, because it's all about sitting around a round table, okay? Mm-hmm. And I'm going to do a favor for the Louisiana Mid-Continent Oil and Gas Association right now and say to Kinder Morgan, please join your colleagues and their association so you can work together as an industry and you can resolve these issues. And uh, uh, Tyler, I just wanted you to know I'm lived up, lived up to my commitment. I'm going to drive <laughs> you some membership if I possibly can. And you have a saying about, you know, being at the table, but we're, we're going to save that for the end of the podcast. Right. But um, you're a fan of the table. Yeah, you are a big fan of, of being at the table. Big, round, circular table, yes. You, look, you can work anything out. You really can. It, 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 you keep the emotions out of it. I mean, that's hard for a lot of people to do, uh, but this is going to sound like hogwash to most people. Politics is not personal, okay? If, if, somebody want, if somebody's hollering and screaming at me and calling me names, it's just because they can't get what they want. It's not because they know me personally and I deserve all that, and I just got to understand and, and so now I'm segueing into what did I enjoy so much about such a, a challenging session? And that's the answer right there is I love a challenge. I, I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a bodybuilder. I went to fly airplanes mainly to see if I could do it. You know, I, I don't, I'm not into aviation really. So my point is this session, because of the mm, tension and behind the scenes deals that were being made was one of the nastiest sessions if not the nastiest session we've ever been in, most difficult, and I enjoyed it more than ever before. So any of my opponents out there listening, ramp up the pressure. You know, diamonds come from pressure. Uh, it just fires you up, huh? Yeah, it fires me up, brother. Yes, it fires me up. The the backroom deals and things like that you're talking about, that's not a new thing to politics, is it? No, but it's reached uh, higher levels. I've, okay. I've been around this. I've been doing this since I was 12, so that's close to 46 years. I've been in every legislative session since then, doing something, sweeping floors, emptying the trash, filing pieces of legislation, you know, driving errands when I got old enough to do that. But I've been around there a long time. And so that's where I learned all of that, you know, so. Hey, we started Grassroots Government as a video series, what, 2017, that session, I believe. Yes. My question for you, it was in in the fall. Mm -hmm. My question for you was, what are you doing right now? Today is the first day after session What's next for Mapes and Mapes? What's next for Joe Mapes? What do you, what, what's, where, where does the work go now? Yeah, that, that's a great question. I mean, here we are the day after 
you know, at a, at a Farm Bureau uh, annual conference. Uh, we, I don't know the dates, but almost immediately we take off for another conference for another client. We're back for two days from that conference, and then we go to another conference in the both five-day con conference. Then we're off for two weeks, and we've got another conference after that, okay? And those are just the three I know So you're of. living in a hotel for next month. That and we're with we're we're with uh, clients, but we're also with legislators, and so we're working. And I mean, you might think, oh, they're playing golf and eating steaks and drinking whiskey. Look, if my job was that easy, everybody would be a lobbyist, and Ruth's Chris would be fifty times larger than it is. Okay, mm -hmm. it's not that easy. So, so uh, yeah, that's 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 a good point. So it's education still. Yeah, that's one of the things we've talked about all, all the time on the podcast. Is your job is to educate legislators, and that's where this work almost picks up right now am i right right and we travel the state not just for those conferences and conventions but we'll be going we're on the phone constantly we're traveling the state and we're 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 educating but we're also connecting dots so if carl wiggers is a constituent in in uh you know east baton rouge parish then we want that legislator or that senator or that rep to know that and to make that connection not to just know say that this issue is important to agriculture but if we can say it's specifically important to a, a voting constituent by name, there's no known defense for that, you know? And you're educating yourself during this time as well by going to these conferences. I mean, it's not just a, a one-way street of, here's what happened while we were at the state capitol fighting for you. You're learning about some of the issues in the policy being decided by Louisiana Farm Bureau, by some of your other clients as well. It's an excellent point. So by the time I do this year after year, as you're saying, in, in the interim, by the time every year when I go back, I'm more of an expert on whatever subject matter it is because I interact with people like you and with people, other membership and the administration. It's an excellent point. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm constantly being educated. I've been doing this for 46 years and I still learn something every single day. But Carl did teach me a while back when we started doing this. We kept sitting down trying to write the script, you know, what, what has happened or, you know, what's about to happen. And Carl says, why don't we just talk about what's happening? Yeah. You know, right now it's like, damn, that's innovative. You know? <laughs> so we, uh, I started doing it and, 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 and I was really surprised at how much I'm involved in at any given time, any day of the year. Once I asked that question, you couldn't shut up. Yeah. Like, well, my, my day has been crazy and it's 9 yeah. a.m. Yeah, it's true. It's true. So... Well, we're going to get some education in just a little bit from Amelia Kent. She is a cattle rancher from uh, East Feliciana Parish. And uh, we'll be right back with that and uh, Andy Brown, our National Affairs Coordinator. I'm Jim Harper, president of the Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation. Agriculture is big business in our state. $11 billion a year for Louisiana's economy. When other businesses had to shut their doors, our essential Louisiana farmers and ranchers continue to provide each of us with the food and fiber we need to survive. That's why I'm a proud member of the Louisiana Farm Bureau family. Visit LAFarmBureau.org, the Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation, the voice of Louisiana agriculture. And we're back now um, for part two, the the bigger picture, the federal discussion. And um, while that may sound super boring or super exciting, depending on what your issue, your the issues you're interested in, I think this is going to be a great conversation because now we have a producer. Andy Brown is killer when it comes to bringing on guests and. He had the idea to bring on Amelia Kent. Amelia is a farmer, where, East Feliciana? East Feliciana. Beef producer, beef and hay, mm -hmm. and also a new mother. Yes. Congratulations. Yeah, um, so we shed the hay to embrace the parenthood. Got you. Well, <laughs> that's important. It's something y'all can both probably agree on. Give and take in the times uh, of infants into, into almost toddler stage, right? Oh, I, I Googled what toddler was. The definition of toddler is anything after a first birthday. So now we have, as oh. of a month ago, we have a toddler. Nice. Well, yes. Amelia, one of the issues that's been in the headlines a lot lately for obvious cyber attacks and for obvious reasons is the beef shortage out there. And, you know, that's something that I, I love beef. I love to eat beef. Um, whenever you go to a grocery store and you see limits on how much beef you can get or you see empty shelves, people freak out and it catches people's attention as a producer. What like what is your take on on a beef shortage? I know you have cows. 
you have steers, you have heifers all in the field right now. Mm-hmm. So it's not, there's, there's not a shortage of beef. How does all that work? So um, the beef shortage, the term beef shortage really started becoming hot a little over a year ago whenever we had the supply chain slowdowns in response to COVID. And I, I really have a hard time processing beef shortage, air quotes, because there isn't a beef shortage. Mm-hmm. Um, so even as most as recent as this past week with the cyber attack on the meat processing company, yes, a number of plants shut down for a day. And there were additional plants that slowed their lines down. And what that means is they slowed their um, processing line down, but they didn't stop production. We didn't lose finished animals that are ready to harvest. We made it may have harvested fewer animals in the course of a day or a week, but we didn't lose animals on the hoof or beef in the case. We maybe didn't see as much beef in the meat cases and other proteins because this was not limited to beef. Um, but yeah, we there is not a beef shortage. There is not a meat shortage. You may not see as much at the grocery store, but the cyber attack has been resolved. I read yesterday that JBS, the company that was affected, paid $11 million in ransom. Um, And from a a market standpoint, I think we saw a little bit of impact for a day or two in our markets. Um, But really things should be back to normal as of this week. Well, it's crazy just to hear that. I mean, people don't think about our security of our nation with our food supply very often, but obviously terrorists and uh, enemies of our country do they, they pick up on it they literally held our food supply at ransom that, and and succeeded unfortunately in this case well one of the things dr abraham who was in your he was your congressman right was he in your district you were in his district i i farm in his district but no longer live <laughs> in his district but i remember there i remember you, you were close everybody's close to dr abraham whenever he was in our in in uh, congress but that was one of the things he talked about a lot was American farmers, Louisiana farmers are crucial to Americans, America's food security. And that was on full display. But I got to ask now, Amelia, you said there was no real slowdown. There was a slowdown, but no real halt in production. There's no real shortage. Why are the meat cases empty? I mean, do you have that million dollar answer? I mean, wh- where does that come from? Okay, so the, the reaction is a critical ingredient in this mix. So think about consumer reaction, consumer and even market reaction. Um, Think about the previous cyber attack that made national news was the colonial pipeline. There was a run on gas pumps on the entire eastern seaboard. Um, And granted, there was an unknown. But when people were asked to not hoard the gas pumps, the first thing they did was go straight to get in a gas line. Um, So I see a lot of. sensationalism and reaction to events like these. Um, and the, I don't think the media helps the. I think the media is trying to help the situation, but as much has adverse reactions as well. Well, we've seen somewhat similar situations, uh, particularly with our timber producers, that they have an abundance of supply in this state and our region and our whole nation uh, that they can't get rid of. Meanwhile, Lumber prices are at an all-time high. Insane. Uh, the housing market plays into that. So it's, you know, everybody doesn't want to go back to their basic economics course at whatever university you went to, but that's in play right now that you see uh, discrepancies in the marketplace that are really just consumer perception or market perception, whether it be supply or demand side. So it's uh, it's Econ 101, but it it. It doesn't make impact, unfortunately. You mentioned Dr. Abraham and how he used to bring this up. He was trying to be proactive on it, but unfortunately, our government a lot of times is reactive and not proactive. So it's taken multiple shortfalls or changes or interruptions into the beef market to bring this to the headlines and why we're here having a discussion about it today. Well, you're saying multiple things. We, we, I mean, it made very clear headlines all over the place, the recent hacking COVID, obviously, the pandemic was a huge headline. Is I mean, have there have been more than those two? Prior to COVID, um, so COVID, we really had some um, processing issues with COVID starting in late spring of 2020. But in October of 2019, a packing plant in 
Holcomb, Kansas caught fire mm. and that one plant caught fire, but the reaction is that plant was shut down indefinitely. So you've got our packing ability at full capacity. So when you take that one plant out of the equation and you have all of these cattle in the area that are ready to harvest, what happens? And the markets went nuts in a downward spiral for two weeks. Um, and I mean, it, we had cattle coming out ready to harvest in that same time frame. And I know that they, we sold them fat finished cattle at 10 and $15 a hundred less than what we had budgeted in a normal predictable market. So the markets went nuts, meaning crash, downward. like downward. Sensational. Or- the, the market reaction was completely speculative and sens- sensationalist, not knowing how long the plant would be down, what the impacts would be, how the hindrance on the rest, like the ripple effect. Mm-hmm. Um, so, of course, the Chicago Board of Trade is what I refer to as the markets, mm-hmm. not limited to cattle. You've got live cattle, which are the fat cattle market. Feeder cattle are the calves that are still out in the pasture and have time left to grow. Mm-hmm. But you've got corn, you've got soybeans, you've got rice. All of our commodities are driven, commodity prices are driven by the markets. And when right. I say the markets, generally that means. Chicago as a basis. So let me real quick. I'm sorry to interrupt. I know you have something coming, Andy, but you're you got an econ degree, right? I do. Shit, I do too. You do too. <laughs> econ and religion. Hers is a much more uh, esteemed institution than good old I, state. I learned how to play with cameras and edit video and audio and stuff. So you're talking about a flooded market, essentially, or seen that way with you know. I say a flooded market. More cattle than can be packaged at the moment whenever you lose a plant. Am I, am, is that wrong to say? Um, I, I hesitate to say flooded market. I, in supply and demand, we have supply that is matched, if not outpacing, our capacity ability. Right. But we also have fewer cattle and fewer pounds in production than 30 years ago or 50 years ago or 100 years ago. I don't I don't know if that's an econ term. I'm trying to think of when that plant gets is, is on fire and comes out of production and you have The other plants had the plants in the regional vicinity absorbed that plant's volume. So it didn't affect supply and demand. What you're getting at is is the root of why this is getting congressional attention now. And that's that yes there was a fire that disrupted you can you can just agree you know you can just kind of assume that yes that interrupted the market but for a very short amount of time okay COVID-19 was a long pandemic but the food system whether it be beef poultry there were plant shutdowns but our food system was in my opinion fairly nimble to adjust and change how they did business to be able to get back up to production same deal in the lumber example I just gave in corn, soybeans, any of those other Chicago border trade, if China makes a big purchase, that changes the market for a, a short amount of time. Uh-huh. All of these are natural occurring things in the market. What hurts Amelia is that when there's a small little blip of a change in the market or you know on the radar of a fire or of even a few weeks shutdown, there's still plenty of processing capacity going on. But the concern is that the big players in the market, the Packers, there's very limited number of them. And so they can have great control over what gets to the grocery store shelf and what comes from the farm through their processing plant. And so do they have control over the price? I mean, I know that's market, that's Chicago Board of Trade. Is that what's affecting the price going down like crazy? Absolutely, yes. That's what I'm trying to get to. Right. So the there's only, demand. That's why price. it's it's been such uh, drawn such attention in the beef market is because what I mean there's three or four major four major packers in this country and that so represent eighty percent of the purchasing volume. So that's going back to our econ uh, background. That's while it's four of them. That's still pretty monopolistic. Right. Activity I was going to say that or word, but I didn't that's know. That's why I... we have a Department of Justice in our government system that's supposed to track 
or track, excuse me, antitrust, not having uh, large conglomerates that can, you know, put their thumb on, you know, family owned business camp farms in East Feliciana Parish. And that's, that's where there's concern that's grown to a very loud voice in with our beef producers in that they're a privately owned business, but they rely on a place, a market to carry their product and get it processed at a fair price. And if there's three or four of them, they don't want to use this word, but colluding to change that price and keep their thumb on the price to, to lower it. Mm-hmm. They're, the, the thought is that they're using these small little blips in the market and creating a longer, much more serious market advantage. Creating mountains, mountains out of molehills. Right. Well, but what COVID really, I, I wholly agree with everything Andy's saying. And what COVID really highlighted even more than six months six months previously with the fire is, all right, the market reaction is the the board prices and in turn the cash prices for these finished cattle coming out of the feedlot. The price that you, the farmer, gets paid. Correct. For these finished cattle going to harvest, they were tanking. Those prices were just downward spiraling with no end in sight to mm-hmm. the tune of 20 and $30 a hundred. If these cattle are weighing 12 and 13, 1400 pounds finishing, you do the math. Um, but couple hundred bucks per. Exactly. But simultaneously, what the prices you were seeing at the grocery store was skyrocketing in the other direction. So whereas historically there's been a, a linear, a relatively linear relationship of cattle pricing to box beef pricing, the disparity in those two has just con- consistently grown. There is no correlation. And what COVID showed, what COVID has shown is you've, I mean, you've got record high beef price, record high box beef prices for the consumer while you're looking at nearly record low live cattle pricing relative to current economics. So the consumer is paying more than ever and the producer is getting paid less than, not ever maybe, but Less than you should be. Less than you should be. So, Andy, take this to the national. What's 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 happening now that it's getting national attention? Well, there's a lot happening, but the the key behind all of it, I don't really think we have time to to talk about every proposal that's out there. But what it's done that's somewhat historic is Farm Bureau is not the only game in town when it comes to advocating for beef producers for cattlemen ranchers across this country. Uh, There's five or six mm, well-established groups that do much like Farm Bureau, have a policy process, may not be the exact same uh, in their grassroots, you know, the the system that we talk about on this podcast a lot, but uh, they all, uh, you know, work these issues just like we do. It's not my purview every day. We have Dr. Ron Harrell that works livestock issues, but he and I coordinate on them when it gets to the national level. But what I'm getting to is that, you know, it doesn't matter. The three of us could have a differing opinion, even though we're like-minded, you know, have different reasonings to have a little differing opinions here and there. Uh, Amelia's been in this game longer than I have when it comes to cattle, but There's been a a hard uh, sell to get all of those cattle industries to get on the same page about some of this for a while. Would would you agree with that? Absolutely. Um, There's been some joking that the the cattle culture or the cowboy culture lends itself to guys getting their boots and spurs dug in pretty hard. Um, And I could characterize some of the producer groups with some very distinct policy issues that differentiate one to the other to the other. Um, But what's been really refreshing with at least this antitrust issue is, first off, I've got to give credit to the LMA, the Livestock Marketing Association, for getting all of these groups at the same table Mm -hmm. and being able to have everyone come together for a candid conversation. So that's that's where history was made. So a few weeks ago, these groups all got together at the request of LMA and when they started the meeting, which I wasn't there, but we have a good friend, uh, my former boss and, and a good friend of Amelia, um, Mike McCormick, Mississippi Farm Bureau's president, 
uh, as well. He was invited by Zippy Duval, American Farm Bureau president, and then the president of Arizona Farm Bureau um, were in that room. And the reports we've got out of it were that those organizations, what was key is that they came to the table and said, yes, we have X, Y, and Z that we might differ of opinion on. We're going to set that aside today and work on what we can come together on to try to get something done. That has not been done in a very long time, but we're immediately seeing the results of that by having things that I'm now working forward with Ron and Amelia on Capitol Hill with our congressman in Louisiana to try to to make some impact on this. Well, having that unified voice, I mean, that's huge. That's that's the point here today is that makes all the difference. It, this is just a good example of that, but that's why we do what we do to try to unify our voice because otherwise, anytime this, I mean, this been going on since 2019, we've been trying to get something done. The Department of Justice has done uh, an investigation on it. You know, there's been other legislation dropped in Congress, but it's just been kind of marker bills that, they were taking care of their home team. It, nothing's moved forward, but it, it's taken, unfortunately, you know, a, a long period of market discrepancy and all the things that we've just described to bring everybody together, say, let's try to get something done. And now uh, Congress, that's that's what they'll tell you without telling you is y'all get together. Tell me what you want. I'm not a cattle producer, at least I don't. There's only a handful of them that can claim that in Congress. You come back to me. And maybe we can get something done. But until y'all get together on it, I can't help you because we got enough arguing going on on Capitol Hill that we can't have, you know, our industry broken apart when we right. go up there. So right. the messaging now is is focused on trying to work on this antitrust collusion or even solutions that it, that I think Amelia sells some of her own beef, you know, getting more of the the local processing back going or just finding there's a lot of options on the table, but ultimately how do we get some of that uncertainty between farm to grocery store figured out? Mm -hmm. I, I see the antitrust and lack of competition as the utmost challenge in everything you just described. And that's the, that's the point that all of those different producer groups were able to agree upon. So let's let, I think they came out of that meeting a couple of weeks ago saying, let's focus on the short term. Let's focus on the short run and all the sticking points and the, the points of disagreement. Let's put them in on the back burner, not that they go away, but let's keep them Let's table that discussion for now and focus on the things we're all on the same page on. Um, so antitrust and lack of competition. But then you also alluded to harvest. Yes, we do sell some meat locally in the forms of halves and holes. Um, so basically just filling your freezer. We don't sell individual cuts as much, but harvest capacity in general is the next big challenge that we need to work on as well, um, which ties directly back into the first point of antitrust inclusion and four players representing 80% of capacity. We need, I was talking with um, our marketer, our agent a couple of weeks ago about this exact topic and Ed Lepinto from Amy Livestock and one of the state one of the comments he made is, you know, we need three to four more regional packing houses nationwide. Um, and what volume does that represent? I, I mean, maybe 2000 head a week or maybe 6,000 head a week. I don't know, but we need three to five more packing plants nationwide of that scale to help remedy this, this volume issue. Um, number of head relative to packing capacity. Mm. Um, if, we're addressing the packing challenge right now through working Saturdays. The plants are working Saturdays, but that's more wear and tear on their equipment. It's harder on the labor force. Um, so we're working through the inventory, but still have concerns from the a short capacity standpoint. And from a local processor, um, we've seen a lot of new local plants coming up, especially in the past couple of years, which is incredibly refreshing because Louisiana has had a shortage of, um, of slaughter ability, mm -hmm. again, just inventory more than anything. Um, so we, I know of a couple of new plants that have sprung up in the past year, and I know of a couple that are on the horizon too. So that, that factors in as well. Well, and then once we get, you know, we've gotten to this point, we're not, we're not there yet on what 
antitrust and fixing some of these issues will look like. But that'll be where it gets interesting to watch people who are just politicians in D.C., how their theories and and stances, you know, political stances factor into this now. So you have, you know, the Democrat side that want to throw a bunch of tax dollars at this issue. And we just heard this week that USDA is going to spend $4 billion to remedy some of these things. We don't know exactly how. They're a little short on details. But, you know, do we want government intervention in our meatpacking industry and, you know, government-owned processing facilities? Or you look to the Republican side and that would say, well, if you scaled back some of the regulations that are holding back our processing facilities that are already there now, they could up their production, you know, so there's just that dynamic that we have to work through too. But the, the key to this is, is that just this week, Amelia visits with our new Congresswoman, Julia Letlow about this. Miss Letlow does not work in the beef industry, but she's there to listen to Amelia. And Amelia took that from the committee that she chairs with Farm Bureau and the, the, discussions they had it's just to me what i do what puts a smile on my face is when that process works beautifully like it's doing right now and right it's don't let a good crisis go to waste this one we're not we're not going to let go to waste and it's nice and i was going to say this i got a couple things to thank you for amelia um andy thank you for doing all that you do but amelia i get a paycheck amelia's a volunteer leader so (laughs) give her all the thanks you are one raising the beef and taking the taking the price that you're given by the Chicago Board of Trade and raising the beef that Andy and I love to grill on the weekends. And so thank you for that. But thank you also, I was going to say this, and Andy like lobbed it up to me, but for, I mean, you're spending a ton of your time out off the farm or on the farm also, but doing working issues like this, getting on Zoom calls, getting on conference calls, leaving the farm to go visit with Julia Letlow at her office. You know, those kind of things are what makes Farm Bureau so strong, makes the Livestock Advisory Committee that you chair so valuable to membership if they're on the committee or not. And I think it makes Farm Bureau, I think that's what makes Farm Bureau so powerful and so uh, such a great voice for Louisiana agriculture on the national stage, which is just awesome for us to be, as staff members, to be a part of because we don't, we aren't just saying, well, uh, the beef matters to Louisiana and this these these issues are important because you're saying it on your behalf, right? I mean, so thank you for doing that. And that if, 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 if we had more Amelia Kent, Sandy, that's what we need. We need some more Amelia Kent. Well, that's, I mean, people want to talk about leadership, whether we talk about it in Phoenix at a meeting of these organizations or, but that leadership happens every day here at home in our organization. Amelia has some personal opinions, what would be best for her farm about some of these side issues that we said were set to the side. Uh, but she understands the need, like we've talked about, to come together. So she, as a leader of our committee, is willing to put her personal, you know, thing on the back burner for now or what, you know, and take the greater conversation, the most beneficial to the most people and use Farm Bureau and other organizations as the vehicle to get that done. And it it does take a lot of volunteer time. It does take, you know, swallowing your own personal interests sometimes. It takes a lot of hours and emails and texts and communications. It's not, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. And we're not, we're not to the finish line with this by any stretch of the imagination. But it's just, we talk about grassroots government and taking it from, you know, Kent Farms to, to legislation. Hill this is what it takes. And yeah. uh, that's what we wanted to, to highlight today. Well, y'all, I, I wish the microphones would show the blush that I have <laughs> right now. Um, thank y'all for your, your great comments. And I, I really do have to reiterate, you know, it's really hard to peel farmers away. We all have stuff to do. Um, so when you're thinking about the farmers and ranchers and boots on the ground and whether they're on their tractors or out I mean, I've got to go and move cows this evening whenever I get back. Um, It does take a lot of time. These handy little smartphones that we all carry, they're a huge tool. Um, You referenced Congresswoman Letlow. Well, hey, I didn't go to D.C. this past week. I went to a meet. I I drove less than an hour from the farm. 
I had to run some errands that direction anyway. So take advantage of in-district office hours. Um, and, and I'll even layer onto that one. Take advantage of staff. Mm. It's hard. A, a congresswoman, a congressperson's time is a hot commodity. Um, but they have staff. They have multiple staff members whose job is to connect with you and do, the, do their deal, due diligence from a homework standpoint to present to the congressperson. So um, it, this issue was, I was communicating with this issue actually from an email I received from the congresswoman's staff person before the, those office hours. I mean, this I've had this dialogue going on um, for upwards to a month. So it the voices are important. Your individual farmer and rancher voice is incredibly important. But when you have the STEAM, uh, earlier today I was presenting to the Farm Bureau State Board of Directors about our Livestock Advisory Steering Committee meeting. We had district representation from cattle producers throughout the entire state to talk about everything we've been talking about here today on the antitrust and lack of competition. In turn, I had support from producers statewide that I could take and communicate and leverage saying, this is what we all believe. This is what we need. Not just me, myself, and I sitting out in my pasture. That's awesome. Thank you, Amelia, for sharing your story here on the podcast and for educating me because I need it just as much as anyone <laughs> because I don't have an econ degree like both of you guys. I don't have the boots on the ground like you have. I don't have the DC expertise that you have, Andy. So I'm pointing. I don't know why I'm pointing because podcast people, you can't see who I'm pointing at, but I don't have your expertise, expertise, so thank you for sharing for our listeners, and I hope uh, I hope this has been helpful. If you found this podcast helpful in understanding the beef markets or understanding what happened this session at the Louisiana Legislature, please share it with a friend. Give it a like. Give it a subscribe. We want to hear your feedback also. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you may be listening. Thank you to Joe Mapes, Louisiana Farm Bureau's lobbyist, Andy Brown. Louisiana Farm Bureau's National Affairs Coordinator, Avery Davidson, Amelia Kent, cattle producer just north of Baton Rouge. Thank you so much for coming on and telling us all about what's going on in the beef markets. For you listening, thank you so much, and we'll see you again next time here on Grassroots Government. Grassroots Government.